you for taking time to listen to this sermon podcast from First United Methodist Church and of our campus in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at either 8.30 or 11 o'clock a.m., at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. There's a common theme running through all four of the scripture readings today, and it seems to be this juxtaposition of love versus law. Uh, what is the orientation of our heart, and then what do our behaviors look like? It's the great question of the church. What is more important? Love or law. Or maybe put it a different way, faith or law. The uh, Protestant Reformation largely was born out of this idea of instead of working our way to salvation, we would have uh, sola fide, only faith. This would be the thing that would, uh, would allow us salvation is our faith. Uh, many would argue that it's actually our faith that comes from the faithfulness of Jesus. But yet, the church The church talks a lot about law, about behavior, about our actions. You hear it in the, the reading that Brad did. Uh, Paul is writing and saying, uh, it, it's all summed up in this one way, love your neighbors. Oh, but by the way, make sure you don't do any of these things that don't look good. Love and have law. The early church didn't have any type of evangelism strategy. They didn't have a multi, multi-level marketing scheme. They didn't have bullhorns on the corner. They didn't have a plan for how they were going to go and make the church grow across the land. But what they had was lives that looked different. Folks saw these groups meeting in homes and coming out and literally exuding love and at the same time behaving differently. They came out, and in some way, they just seemed to care about people more, to be more kind and more compassionate. But then they also did things like they would not go and participate in the the cultic activities of emperor worship. They had love, and they had law. When people would come and find this compelling, they would say, look, we we want to be formed to be like you. And they'd say, okay, well, until your heart is right, fake it. Live this way. Modify your behavior such that uh, you look different. And eventually you will be different. They believed that the Spirit would work in and through uh, these people living out these behaviors to transform their heart. Uh, We can't have Paul and salvation by faith without James and this idea that we have to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That our lives need to look a certain way. I think the problem is that so often churches uh, focus on one and forget the other. I was raised in a church that I believe uh, had the best of intentions in the whole world. They uh, loved us and wanted to raise us up well in the faith. But what I was raised up as is as a Christian Pharisee. If I got my behavior just good enough, I wouldn't go to hell. If I did just enough sin avoidance, things would be okay and God would love me. 
Blessed is Chad if he uh, doesn't uh, cuss, if he doesn't lie to his parents. When you get farther up in youth group, it's blessed is the kid who doesn't watch porn or the person who doesn't have premarital sex. Blessed is the one who listens to good Christian music. But it seemed to miss the step of our hearts being transformed. I was raised that our behavior matters and I was told that God loves us and we're to love other people, but there's this disconnect between why our behavior matters and how it intersects with what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. I, I think I thought the whole gospel was about behavior modification when it seems that, at, at least in Matthew's gospel, behavior is always secondary. He begins the Sermon on the Mount not with blessed are those who don't sin, does he? Begins the Sermon on the Mount with blessed are those who are hopeless because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who grieve because they may be glad. Blessed are the people who are humble for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the people who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness because they will be fed until they are full. Blessed are people who show mercy because they will receive mercy. Blessed are people who have pure hearts because they will see God. Blessed are people who make peace because they will be called God's children. Blessed are those whose lives are harassed because they are righteous because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. This full beginning of Jesus' first major sermon is about the orientation of our hearts, the ways our lives are oriented towards the world, nothing about our behavior He sets the stage that absent these heart things, everything he's getting ready to say about behavior means nothing. He's going to preach an entire sermon about uh, that behavior matters, but it's all rooted in the heart. He's going to go on and talk about, uh, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say, anyone who looks with lust has committed adultery, getting at the root of the heart. You hear it in the psalm that Brad read today, Psalm 119, this longest chapter of the Bible who talks about law over and over. Blessed are your precepts, let me keep your rules, let me follow in your paths, let me keep your uh, commands. But every other line is, change my heart to desire to walk in your ways. Let me be filled with your righteousness that I might do these things. Not let me do these things that my heart might be transformed. I was telling Bill's Sunday school class this morning that I think the church has raised far more Pharisees than the nation of Israel ever had. See, the Pharisees, they wanted to get it right. They wanted God's presence to come. They wanted Israel to be restored and they thought they could do that by getting their behavior right and getting everybody else's behavior right. And it's the easier thing for us to judge, right, as a church. It's easier for us to look around and go, okay, they are acting right, so things must be okay. But Jesus, at every point, bumped up against the Pharisees and said, it's not not your behavior that matters so much as your heart if you get your heart right the behavior will be a fruit of it and then he spends the whole gospel telling us what it means for our heart to be right we've wandered through um, through various passages about what it means 
uh, for Jesus to be the Messiah. And then uh, last week we took this major turn where he says, uh, okay, I'm going to the cross. And you know what? If you want to follow me, you have to take up your cross and come with me. He begins to frame what our hearts as Christians should look like. And it should look like everything that comes after that in the gospel. It should look like a transformed life. And he's going to tackle the issues of the day and say, let me tell you how a, a follower of me would work from their heart. We come to today's passage, this uh, one on conflict management and uh, resolving our issues with one another. And it's rather awkward because it's about church discipline, right? What do we do when a brother or sister in the church sins against you? This is another week where I kind of didn't want to preach the passage. I just wanted to go skip on to the, uh, the parable of the unrepentant person next week or go back and preach the parable of the lost sheep that we skipped over. Uh, I didn't really want to talk about what do we do if Shalimar sins against me? What Brad should do if I sin against him? This is uncomfortable stuff. But I found it helpful in my study for uh, uh, Frederick Bruner pointed out that this isn't the first time Jesus has talked about conflict management. Is it? How many more times do you think that Jesus has talked about conflict management before this? One time, two times, three times? A boatload, right? Conflict is at every turn for Jesus and his disciples. Conflict with the Pharisees, conflict with themselves. But he seems to be laying the groundwork for conflict management within those who are his disciples. Uh, before we get to this one where I go and confront Janelle because she has sinned against me, he's already laid out uh, two more important ways, I think. Back in Matthew 5 when he said, you've heard it say don't commit murder. I say if you're angry, you've already committed murder in your heart. We usually stop preaching that passage. But then it says, if you've, if you've got something, uh, or sorry, if your neighbor has something against you, go and make it right. The very first time Jesus talks about conflict management, he says that the one who is offended is the one who should go and fix things. Jesus doesn't wait for the victim to go and deal with the issue. The onus is on the one who has wronged somebody. If I've wronged Shalimar, my job is to go to Shalimar and say, I'm sorry and forgive me. He doesn't stop there though. He goes on later on and teaches us to pray as uh, his disciples would pray, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as is heaven. Give us this daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Jesus' second point of conflict resolution is this idea that we should begin from a posture of forgiveness. That just as we expect God the Father to forgive us despite what we have done, we are to forgive others despite what they've, they've done. We could do a whole series on what forgiveness means because the church has weaponized that at times to kind of make it, okay, that person sinned against you. Forgive them and move on. Forgiveness isn't uh, forgetting Forgiveness isn't enabling somebody to even do something again. Forgiveness might mean that you, you are not in fellowship any longer, but it means letting the power of that wrong lose control over your heart. Jesus says, okay, if I've wronged Brad, let me go fix it. And then he says to Brad, okay, if Chad's wronged against you, forgive him in your heart. Only then do we come to this passage. This passage on what do you do if a brother or sister sins against you and they haven't come and made it right. If they haven't uh, said, hey, I'm wrong and I'm sorry. 
Before we even jump into the so what, it's important to name the so who. If a brother or sister has sinned against you, this assumes a brother or sister that are part of the way, that are part of the, the fellowship, part of the church. This is not a manual for how to go out into the world and deal with that person who has a different political persuasion than you that you want to fix. This isn't a manual for how to go uh, stand in the streets and deal with that person you don't like. This is a manual for fixing relationships within the family of God. And it's not even about fixing relationships for others. It doesn't say, if a brother or sister has sinned, go. It's if a brother or sister has sinned against you. I would love it if we never got to this point, right? If the first two stages of conflict resolution took care of themselves. If every time I sinned against somebody, I went and made it right. If every time somebody was sinned against, they forgave that person and we never had to go have a confrontation, it would be wonderful, right? That is not the reality in the life of the church, is it? No is the correct answer. Y'all can shake your head. No, there is always conflict in the church. The question is, how do we deal with it? The passage is pretty straightforward. If there's conflict, if a brother or sister sins against you, go and correct them when you're alone together. If they listen to you, then you've won over your brother or sister. This is the ideal way, and quite frankly, it's the way we tend to avoid, isn't it? If there's a problem, go directly to that person and deal with them. If I've sinned against Marcy, she's supposed to come to me and say, Chad, this wasn't right. And in the dream world, we reconcile and things are good according to the text. But so often we don't even take that step, do we? We skip right past it and we go to two or three others. But we don't even follow the directions there. If they won't listen, take one or two others with you so that every word may be established by the mouth or two or three witnesses. This is drawing from Deuteronomy chapter 19 in this Old Testament law that there's danger in convicting someone on the word of one person. There's danger in our church these days if we pass around uh, the ways that Janelle has wronged me without us actually managing our own conflict and inviting others to help us. Uh, You've seen this in churches splitting over toxic relationships where we form factions, but the two don't ever actually talk to each other. We see this when uh, Sunday school classes break down over unhealthy uh, interpersonal dynamics. We see this all the time. It literally is in our staff manual that we don't do triangulation. If I've got a problem with Jeremiah, my job isn't to go uh, back there to Lloyd and talk about my problem with Jeremiah. My problem is to go to him and say, this is where you've wronged me. Only then uh, are we able to to handle conflict appropriately. The the dream is that if if we don't reconcile, we invite others in to help us reconcile. Okay, Jan, Holly, will you you come with us and help us talk this out? Will you help us uh, make this right? And the text says, if you have, it's wonderful. But if they won't pay attention, report it to the church. Uh, it's not explicit here, but this is not a send out the mass text to the group about how you've been wronged by Sarah. This is uh, what James would talk about, you know, go to the elders of the church. This is where you go uh, to the pastor, to the, the ALT members, to the people who can help 
uh, take next steps in church discipline, this isn't how you burn the house down behind you. And it's so tempting to do that, isn't it? That's probably my, um, well, I know that is my character flaw, is when there's conflict, uh, my instinct isn't uh, naturally to go and fix it in a healthy way. Uh, I've got burned bridges behind me, especially from my college days, where uh, you wronged me, I'm scorching the earth behind me on the way out. But Jesus offers a different way. A way that's hard and uncomfortable, that doesn't let you off as easy as just burning things down. I've been trying to use holy imagination and wonder what the church would look like if we had actually practiced this from the beginning. We, we have valid church splits over doctrinal and theological issues. Uh, the, the church split between the East and the West over the question of uh, how the Holy, Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Uh, the Protestant Reformation seemed to be a very uh, uh, valid attempt to reform the church, to, to move beyond um, uh, indulgences and, and some of the ways the church had stagnated. But so often our church is split over poor conflict management, over uh, offending one another and not dealing with it, over letting, letting wounds fester or burning things down behind us. Our church, the church, the church Catholic, needs this maybe more than ever. Our world is quickly uh, moving to where there is no unity and diversity, where there is no gray, where there is no ability to live in a middle ground. If you do not think, act, and live exactly as I think you should, you are wrong. And what that sets us up for is tons of conflict. If we think people are only going to the political polling stations or to their news channels with bias ready to start a fight, it is in the church. We are all locked and loaded by our world. We're going to need to use these skills with uh, great dexterity. We're going to continue to deal with the ramifications of this pandemic and what it means to reopen. We are United Methodist. General Conference is coming next year. And whatever happens and however we live into that, it is going to require us to love in pretty powerful ways. It's going to require us to have our hearts transformed such that we seek to be a people of holy love who then believe that conflict management is important. We're going to be people whose hearts are transformed such that our behaviors reflect that. We're going to be people who offer grace and forgiveness, a people who start from a posture of let me go and deal with my wrongs, a place where we can actually offer up a true heart of forgiveness even if somebody wronged us. The passage right before this is the parable of the lost sheep. For a while, I didn't see that they connected at all, but then I think, I think it has struck me more and more this week that that parable is about Jesus, frankly, putting the 99 sheep in risk to go after the one. The sheep are always in danger in the field. There's always worry that there's a lion 
on the prowl. And Jesus says, it is worth, it is worth a little risk to go after the one. This conflict resolution, this addressing hurts from our brothers and sisters is risking. It opens us up to being vulnerable. Brene Brown has made an entire career on the difficulty of vulnerability. It's hard for me to go to Bill and say, man, that's wrong and you sinned against me. To work through the mess of dealing with it. And it's, it's even harder if he doesn't reconcile with me to get two others to come along and let's deal with this. But friends, it's a skill we need to practice and practice well and practice hard if we're going to hold together as the people of Andover and the people of First Methodist Church, if we're going to be the people who are called Methodist in this land. And I think we should want that. We stand in a perfect spot, the best spot to offer the world love and law, where people who believe that our hearts are transformed to love perfectly such that our lives bear witness to that through our actions, that we actually become a holy people who no longer sin willfully, who can point to the world that is increasingly right or left and say, no, the very medium way is not political lukewarmness. It's the love of Christ shed abroad in our hearts. Friends, the world needs to see that the Methodists can go out and declare that that Christ is more than Republican or Democrat, that he is more than any nation. And that he loves you, and you, and you. That he will transform your heart, offer you a spirit of life. It isn't love or law. It's love and law. It's love that gives birth to fruit. We Methodists have historically always celebrated communion weekly um, as a place to be filled with sanctifying grace, this grace that enables us to be made perfect in love of one another and love of God. And we've always celebrated it in a particular fashion, which is to start with confession, um, to acknowledge that uh, we have sinned against God and one another. Historically, if we were uh, in the days of handshaking and hugging people, we would offer a time of peace and reconciliation right in the middle, recognizing that conflict management happens within the life of the church and we shouldn't even come to the table with issues between one another. This table, the simple bread and the simple cup, They should stand as a sign to the world that Christ offers something different. The world desperately needs it and the world will see it in and through us. A people whose lives are transformed in love and who bear witness through our actions.